you have such a smart, casual way of describing things and telling stories. It's just so engaging to read your writing. It reminded me how much I just enjoy reading you. So you're going to put that in the podcast, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. This book tells the story of a life and an idea. That's the opening sentence of Stephen Prothero's most recent book, God the Bestseller, How One Editor Transformed American Religion a Book at a Time. God the Bestseller is about the life of Eugene X-Men and the idea that X-Men helped popularize in America during the mid-20th century. During his time as an editor at the publishing house Harper in the mid-20th century, X-Men helped, quote, transform his country into a nation of seekers in which spiritual experimentation is something of a national sport and searching is valued as much as finding or dwelling, according to Prothero. I am Shawnee Luft, religion professor, associate dean, and podcast host at UWSP. And on this episode of No Cure for Curiosity, I spoke with Stephen Prothero, the New York Times bestselling author, religion scholar, emeritus professor from Boston University, and my advisor when I started graduate school at Boston University over 20 years ago. This episode was a blast for me because I got to reconnect with Stephen as we talked about his new book, about how Eugene Xman drove a conversation about religion that is still continuing today. But we also talked about being professors of religious studies and about academics who aspire to engage broader non-academic audiences. If you have ever described yourself as spiritual but not religious or a religious seeker, I think you'll enjoy my conversation today with Stephen Prothero. I often talk about you as the model for the kind of academic I'm most drawn to because you're really interested in talking to a broader audience. Yeah. I feel like it's it's really necessary for not just religious studies, but I think for the humanities to do a better job explaining to the public what their value is. For me, you know, I was trained more as a historian. So, and historians are kind of notoriously anti-theory people. Mm -hmm. I do find some theoretical things interesting, but in general, I just find them diversions. For me, my turning point was this editor I had, Paul Eli, who edited my American Jesus book. And I just found, I love talking to him. He's really smart. He's really widely read in American religion and literature. And, uh, you know, it was more exciting talking to Paul. And I think that's what, that's what pushed me along with wanting to write for broader audiences you know, that's what pushed me toward doing more trade books and, you know, more public things. So you talked about uh, your current editor, and I'm really curious if that is what drew you to this guy that's the focus of your book, God the Bestseller, How One Editor Transformed American Religion One Book at a Time. Uh, he was an editor. And so um, first, I got to say, when I saw the title, God the Bestseller, I thought, you are the best at book titles. I don't write them. I don't write them. I, I take no credit. I, I think I've only written one or two really? book titles. Was this your editor suggested it? Are we starting, by the way? Yeah, good question. <laughs> I will. Um, I just want to have a casual conversation with you, and I will turn it into a podcast. Yeah, great. Yeah. So, what was the question again? When I saw the title "God the Bestseller," I, my first thought was it was going to be like about um, you know the, how the Bible is a best-selling book in America or something like that. Or, um, but the subtitle is "How One Editor Transformed American Religion a Book at a Time." So, my first question, then, because you just talked about your editor, is. Do you think that the editor you work with got you interested in that profession or that kind of work? That's really, really interesting because it never crossed my mind. Huh. But I do think, 
I do think that my first trade book editor, Paul Eli, who now is at Georgetown, I think he made me realize the importance of editors and he made me realize the collaborative nature of books. I, I think it's really common, especially in academia, to think of books as individual productions, especially in fields where people don't collaborate, you know, on, on articles. And books are very collaborative. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you asked me about a minute ago about, you know, the title of the book. And I said, I never write the titles, which I, I almost never do. They're almost always written by the publisher or by an editor or by someone in a meeting, you know, some smart person in a meeting, like, hey, what should we call this book? You know, how about God the bestseller? Nice. But in terms of the editor, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because Paul Eli really made me appreciate the intellectual work of an editor and the influence that editors have on authors. I mean, he taught me how to write, a, he taught me how to write books. Hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't my mentor in graduate school, Bill Hutchison, who was, who was amazing. He taught me how to do scholarship, but Paul taught me how to write a book. But I think, you know, the main reason this book happened was because I stumbled on this archive. Yes, and that's a great story. I actually wanted you to, to repeat that story because it is kind of um, remarkable. But do you want to, can you tell a little bit about how you came across this guy's archive? Sure. So I, so this woman called me up on the phone and she said, could you come over to my house and look at all these religion books that my father had? And my first thought was, oh, do I really have to do that? Because it's almost always former ministers, Protestant ministers, Catholic ministers who have a bunch of, you know, books from 50 years prior that aren't that interesting. So I put it off. I called her back. There had been a family death. She said, call back later. I called back a few weeks or maybe a couple months later. I found out she herself had died. And so I started talking with her husband who invited me over to the house and he took me into the library. And the first thing I noticed about the books was they were more recent, you know, they were mid 20th century. And the first book I picked up was Martin Luther King's Stride Toward Freedom. And I opened it up and I looked and I saw it was a first edition, which I thought was cool. And then I saw there was a letter inside and it was from Coretta Scott King. And it said, Dear Gene, thank you so much for working with Martin on his first book. You've been such an important part of our family and such an important contributor to the civil rights movement. So then I'm like, what? <laughs> Who is this guy? <laughs> so then like a couple books away on the same shelf was the big book of AA, the sort of Bible of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. And I opened that up. And on one of those large format pages, there was a note that was filled up the whole page. It was from Bill Wilson, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Dear Gene, thank you so much for the contributions you made to the founding of AA and to the editing of the big book. You've been such a great friend, something like that. So here I am, you know, it's Martin Luther King and it's the co-founder of AA and, and, and they somehow know this guy and he's working with them. And so after looking at these books, I asked Walter Kess, who's the son-in-law of Eugene Exman, if he had any papers and he sort of tilts his head back and rolls his eyes and, and he said, oh, my God, this family, they never threw anything away. And, and I'm, you know, as a historian of religion, I'm like, that's what I want to hear. And he had called me over to see the books. And the books were interesting, but they're mostly interesting for what was written in them. And also for a lot of them had letters and postcards and things like that inside the books. And so to make a long story even longer, he, over the next six months, started going out to the barn behind the house. And he would bring in these boxes. And that's how this parade of boxes started happening that were these amazing, amazing letters between X-Men and so many of his authors. 
right before our conversation, I ran in, in the hallway into one of our librarians. And I, I mentioned that I was going to talk to you about this new book you'd written. And he asked me what it was about. And I said uh, that you came across this incredible archive material of this character who, if you're interested in religion in America, this guy is like the Forrest Gump of religion in America. He just like appears like there's Dorothy Day and there's Bill Wilson of co-founder of AA and there's Martin Luther King and, and, and California mystics. And from the 30s to the 60s, he just like shows up where interesting conversations are happening about religion. It's really fascinating. Yeah, he is. He's definitely Forrest Gumpy. <laughs> and yeah, you can sort of just picture him. Uh, I think the way you think of it now almost is, is that he is, you know, photobombing all these selfies that people are taking. So Aldous Huxley is out there with Houston Smith in Southern California and Eugene Exman is like sticking his head in to, to, you know, get into the picture or Dorothy Day mm -hmm. is doing her thing at the Catholic worker and Exman is sticking his head in there. And of course, it's different from that because Forrest Gump is showing up at these pre-existing events, but X-Men is curating the events, right? So he's right. He's saying, "Hey, let's all go out to Southern California and start this start this commune dedicated to researching the ways in which Asian religions have methods of meditation that might lead us to see God." And similarly, he gets involved in LSD research for spiritual purposes in the late fifties. You know, before the famous BU experiments before Timothy Leary. And he goes to India and finds a guru, you know, three or four or five years before the Beatles are going to India. Eugene Exman himself, what's interesting about him is, as you get into in the book, is not so much like his personal life, although that is kind of interesting, um, but the way in which he drives the conversation about religion sort of in a, in a public context. He expands, I guess, the way people understand religion with the range of books that he's publishing uh, and the conversations that he's involved in. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think I might have a slight disagreement, which is that okay. I think his significance is what you said. He's significant because he steers a conversation in the United States in a certain direction. But his significance is the way he shaped the broader culture and the way he popularized people like William James and the way he popularized mm -hmm. what I call the religion of experience. But I think his personal life is really, really interesting. Yes. And that's what that's what shifted in my mind. So, you know. When he's a teen, you know, he's a Baptist and he goes to fundamentalist church. And when he's a, he's a teenager, he's going to a Wednesday night Bible study and he's he's riding his horse into town. And all of a sudden his horse just sort of stops and like pulls back and an X-Men looks at what's going on and, and he he sees God. He has a mystical He has this like spiritual conversion yeah. Paul on the road to yeah. Damascus experience. He has this mystical experience. I guess he just spends the whole rest of his life trying to find people who have mystical experiences too, so they can explain to him what happened to him. I started to see him as sort of a character in a novel who really wanted something ever since he was a teenager. And what he wanted was to have this experience happen to him again. And mm -hmm. so he just devoted his personal and professional resources to gathering these people around him and they became his friends and they became his authors and uh, they became his collaborators. And some of them worked for him. And in the end, almost everything that he did was was predicated around that quest. And it wasn't a quest to find the right religion. It was the quest to see God again. When I was reading that in the, I think you tell that story in the introduction or in the preface, I wrote in the margins, 
has Steve ever had an experience like this? And then I thought, I don't know if I should ask that question because <laughs> people in religious studies don't talk about their own religious experiences very much. And I couldn't remember talking to you about your own religious experiences very much. So I have had the only thing, the only experiences that I've had that strike me as in any way akin to mystical experiences happened when I was in India researching my my dissertation. Mm-hmm. And I like to preface it by saying that I was on a vegetarian diet, which was not typically <laughs> typical for me. <laughs> May have been a little protein deprived. So you're already seeing the intrusion of some biomedical theories into what happened, yeah. what happened to me. But I I had these experiences where I would see this kind of life review happening and I was scared by it. So I would try to get my mind off of it and I would just try to focus on something else, like focus, seeing a bird outside or looking at books on my table or whatever, uh, whatever it might be. But these experiences kept recurring. They probably happened like five or 10 different times. And each time I would just allow them to go longer because I was less scared by it to the point where they finally might go on for a minute or so. And what they were, what was weird about them was they were, they were sort of past episodes from my life, but they were always in the same order and they went really, really fast. So they, they would go like, it seemed to me like two or three a second or something. Okay. And then they would just pile on top of each other, but they were always in the same order. It, was it the order in which you experienced them in real life or the- I don't remember that. I don't remember that. I just remember them having an order. And that, that's part of what was uncanny about it to me was that it wasn't just that I was remembering in a weird way of remembering, because it really was just very quick flashes, these scenes from my life. And they they seemed to have some order that I had I had no agency in constructing. At least I, I didn't sense that. But I think the main thing is for me is that I I was kind of a religious kid. You know, I just I just thought religion was intriguing ever since I was young. And when I when I got into college participating religiously in the Christian tradition in which I was raised, uh, it just became too problematic for me. And, and it was mostly because I had friends who were Muslim and who were Jewish. And I just couldn't wrap my head anymore around the idea that I had the truth and they had the falsehood. Yeah, And so it was a sort of moral and epistemological thing for me. But because of my early experiences, I always kind of wanted to have religion, I always I always felt nostalgic about it. Yeah, the study of religion is is not um, intended to make a kind of judgment on religion the way that different religious groups will sort of argue about what is true about God or what is true about mysticism. The thing that I I have continued to struggle with as a professor is the concept of belief. Students who come into a religion class often think of belief as just an on off switch. You either believe it or you don't, and if you believe it, there you're done. You're, the, the The road is over. <laughs> you now permanently believe it, <laughs> yes. and now you think that's true. And if you don't believe it, um, it's impenetrable. And I feel like that idea of belief as either on or off is so inaccurate. But we don't. It's almost like I need a different word. And what I've tried to say to students is, when you walk out of a movie, when you walk out of the Matrix. 
you don't say, you know, the thing about Neo is that it was not believable <laughs> that that he had that superpower. <laughs> the question of yeah. belief is kind of irrelevant to the story. Yeah. But the story can still be compelling. And I feel like I wish we could talk about religion like we talk about movies, which is, I guess, a way of saying I wish we, we could talk about religion. We could focus on kind of mythology, right? Because the storytelling in religion is, I think, some of what people respond to the most um, enthusiastically. Yeah. And, but we oversimplify I, it by saying either you believe this is true or you don't believe this is true. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, this is why I've been shifting in recent years away from this idea of, oh, religions are belief systems to religions are story systems. You know, I think what religions succeed and fail on for the most part is not their beliefs. It's not even the rituals. I think it's their stories. Mm -hmm. And those stories are compelling. And of course, they're attached to beliefs and they're attached to rituals. On their attached to institutions. But, um, you know, in, I, I did this textbook a few years ago called Religion Matters that I'm revising now for a second edition. And in there, I make this argument at the beginning that religions are about stories. They're not fundamentally about beliefs. Mm -hmm. And and I just think people are attracted to stories. People like stories. People like to tell stories. This is a very native thing for us. We've been doing it as a species for, for you know, tens of thousands of years. We sit around the fire. We sit around the TV, you know, we sit around our computers mm -hmm. and we like, look at a story. We listen to a story. We tell each other a story. We, we rewrite it in our own fan fiction-y kinds of, kinds of ways. And I think that's exactly right. That's um, what has drawn people to religion over the millennia, not the belief structures that philosophers and, and others feel they need to codify. Yeah. And, you know, this is one thing you know, to get back to get back to the book mm -hmm. yeah. that X-Men was really pushing um, with the help of William James, who came before him, the famous psychologist slash philosopher, that religion is not about beliefs. Religion is about, about feelings. Religion is about experiences. He would be at retreats and people would start debating beliefs and he'd say, that's not why we're here. We're not here to argue about different beliefs. We're not here to hear from the evangelicals and the liberals and from the Buddhists and the Hindus about their beliefs. Let's talk about our experiences. And for him, that's what was shared because he was assuming, mm -hmm. you know, there's there's a God and there's humans and humans are programmed in certain ways, you know, because of our, our physicality, because of our genes, whatever. So let's dig into that. Like, let's, why are we doing this thing about the Trinity or whatever? Like, who cares about that? Mm -hmm. You know, let's focus on religion as feeling, religion as experience. And this move is so often the move toward a more capacious, more uh, religious diversity kind of approach, right? That, that, um, if it's about belief, or even if it's about ritual, then it's going to be hard to find much common ground across the religions. But if it's about this feeling that people have, or if it's about these experiences that people have, that maybe there is some reason to hope for common ground. Yeah, thank you for that. God the Bestseller is clearly going to be really interesting to religious studies majors um, and people who study religion in America. Do you see that them as the primary audience for this book, or do you think there's a broader audience uh, for X-Men's story and for the story of this book? I think there's the broader audience. And I think the broader audience would be people who participate in what I call the religion of experience or the culture of experience. Mm -hmm. This is very common and very powerful in American society and also the world of people 
who are so-called spiritual but not religious, right? People who are disaffected from religion, but they have these spiritual impulses and they find ways to articulate them. And in yoga classes, in meditation, in Tai Chi. So I think there's something afoot in American popular culture, American consumer culture, American religion, American spirituality, that is not at all niche, that is very much mainstream. And I think if you want to understand where that comes from, you can go back to maybe, if you're a historian, to the Puritans and their emphasis on conversion experience, to the transcendentalists and their emphasis on the intuitive experience of the individual in nature and outside of the churches, like with Thoreau and Emerson. Mm -hmm. But another place you can go is to the middle part of the 20th century with Eugene Exman and his authors, who are coming together to publish hundreds of best-selling books, telling people that religion is really about feeling and experience, and it is not about doctrine, and it's not about ritual. And if you are as disgusted as we are by the rituals and the doctrines of the institutional churches, whether they're Protestants or, or Catholics or whatever they might call themselves, you should consider looking for God yourself. You know, why don't you sit down and learn how to meditate? Why don't you read a good book about Zen Buddhism? Maybe it'll bring you, you know, closer to God. Maybe you should be in a small cell group of eight or 10 people like X-Men was in that met every night for well over a decade where people would gather on Monday nights and they'd have dinner and they'd read a book out loud and they'd talk about the book and they would search for God in, in that way. This is a very appealing idea to a lot of people. And I think the people who find that appealing, I think they'll be interested in the book. That's a great answer. I'm, I want to push back on one thing you're saying. I'm really interested in your thoughts on this. Um, when you are contrasting X-Men's interest in and, and connection to religion through the idea of experience, you're contrasting that with a doctrinal view of religion. And I want to ask you or push back a little bit on whether ritual should deserves to be on one side of that equation and experience on the other side. Um, that is, I think, the way – that is a very Protestant way of thinking about ritual, right? <laughs> but when you study religion and popular culture, gosh, the, the amount of uh, – and the, the need for ritual in people's lives seems to be closer to, in my mind, what you and I were saying about the storytelling. Why would somebody wait online on um, Black Friday? Why would somebody wait online 24 hours <laughs> uh, to buy a phone? What are they doing? That is a religious ritual. And so to me, ritual and doctrine don't deserve to be combined that way, or I don't think of them that way. Yes. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think there's I think there's a couple contrasts that I'm drawing that sometimes overlap and sometimes don't, and you're okay. teasing out a way in which they don't. So mm -hmm. I think maybe to be more clear, there's a contrast between individual feeling and doctrines developed by a community. So feeling versus doctrine here rather than ritual. But then there's also a contrast between personal, what I would maybe call personal religion, or they might call personal spirituality, and mm -hmm. institutional religion. And this is very operative today, and this was central to X-Men's conversations with all his people he was publishing. And this is kind of transcendentalist, right? This is kind of Emersonian, you know, the personal religious thing is what really matters. It's also uh, uh, J.D. Solinger, where... You just want to avoid what's phony. This is right. the same period 
the same period that X-Men is, is operative. You know, the, the institutional church is phony and the individual experience is real. So mm-hmm. there's a contrast between the fake and the, the fake and the real, between the institutional and the personal. And there's also one between feeling and doctrine. And I agree with you. And ritual. So where does ritual line up? Ritual is intervening in this conversation as an example of what the institutional church does. And it's imagining the ritual that is the boring thing that's done the same way every time with the same mumbo jumbo, the same words, whether that's in a Catholic church or a more liturgical, you know, Protestant setting. And that's just not real from this perspective. Like what's real is something that's more spontaneous that happens in a smaller group. And so, so, so where, where ritual fits there, I think it depends on, I'm kind of using it in quotes, right? Because it's the way the people who don't like the institutional church use that word ritual. They don't mean this cool thing you can do at your dance class where you have this nice ritual that you start it with and you have this nice ritual that you end it with. And it just kind of tucks in all the other stuff that's happening, the fabulous things that are happening in your spiritual dance class. It isn't that. It's the boring rote things that happen, you know, in your church community or your synagogue. Well, that's a good distinction. I like that a lot. A couple times now, I've taught a class called Religion in the 20th Century. Um, a lot of um, education students take that class, undergrads, a lot of social workers take that class. And what I tell them is the goal of this class is to give you the uh, a way of thinking about religion and information about religion that is designed to help you in your job. I think of this really practically. Right, that there's certain things you need to know. You need to know about certain Supreme Court cases if you're going to be a public school teacher. But the other thing I say to students is, if you want to understand what is happening right now, like with regard to culture and politics and the culture wars, studying the 20th century is the setup to what it, to where we are right now. Like you were talking about the uh, collapse of institutional religion um, and the rise of the culture wars and the the connection between evangelicalism and and the Republican Party. So the reason I'm setting all that up is to ask you: Do you think X Men's biography and and writing about his work helps us understand something about where religion in America is right now? Yeah, I think it does. I think it, I think it does all all those things that you just described, and I think I think that it it explains why we are so preoccupied with religion for one but also with getting away from religion to something better like that we might call spirituality mm-hmm. with the experiential side of religion because if you take an intro to religion class you're going to be told that there's a lot of different ways to define religion and this feeling personal intuitive way of doing it is only one way and is a very Protestant sort of way to do it. Um, I think also another another way in which X-Men's story helps us understand our situation is that it helps us understand why Protestantism is so tied into what we call religious pluralism. You know, we think when I was in graduate school, I sort of thought, oh, we moved from Protestantism to pluralism. Like we moved to a society in which what was normal and right was to be a Protestant to a society in which what was normal and right was to be of one of many different religions or none, as Barack Obama said in his, um, in his first inaugural, you know, we are a nation of, I forget exactly how he framed it. That red state, blue state speech. Yeah. Well, 
Well, it grew out of that speech, but this is his inaugural where he said, wow. you know, we are a nation of, you know, Christians and Jews, Hindus and Buddhists and non-believers. You know, that was a sort of a classic statement of uh, religious pluralism, pluralism here meaning diversity, which is valued rather than diversity, which is scary. So I think um, one other theme in the book is the ways in which X-Men's Protestantism both as a driver toward perennialism and toward pluralism, but also is um, breaks on a more fulsome, a more, you know, full-throated uh, understanding of pluralism. And, you know, you see this in his conversations, uh, his interactions with Martin Luther King in, in the development of his book, Stride Toward Freedom and other books where X-Men is always hoping for a kind of simple um, colorblind, can't we all just get along thing? Mm -hmm. And he's sometimes successful in pushing Martin Luther King toward that. You can see this in the King papers at Boston University with literally watching how the pages are marked up there. Mm -hmm. um, and other times he pushes back. And, and you see the same thing with Dorothy Day, where there's some people in the Harper office, not X-Men so much, but other people who, who are his employees um, or his coworkers who are saying, Dorothy Day, you know, she's so like medieval, you know, she, she like believes in this, these sacraments and she, you know, she's really into the saints. Like she doesn't even think they're metaphors. She think, you know, what's wrong? Like, we kind of like her politics. It's cool. You know, she's like feeding the poor, but, but um, can't she just write this a little different? So Protestants will buy the book and read it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so that tension I found in the book really, really, interesting. Um, and I think it's one that we still live with today where there's on the left, at least, and even in the American center, there's a desire, desire for religious pluralism, but it's really hard to find an understanding of pluralism that isn't imbricated with all kinds of Protestant assumptions. So here's the last question I want to ask you. I have no idea how this is going to go, but um, I just want to try it and see what happens. I want uh, I'm going to share a paragraph with you from the book, and I want you to read it, and then I want to ask you a question about it. Okay. The word middlebrow was first used shortly after World War I as a term of derision by elite defenders of great art and literature against whoever might dare to mix what should not be mixed, the highbrow culture of the intelligentsia and the lowbrow culture of the masses. For dumbing down the classics, for cutting away nuance and complexity, for vulgarizing all that is true and beautiful, these tasteless makers and marketers of middlebrow culture deserve nothing but disdain, or so said their critics. X-Men, who made a living shooting the gap between highbrow and lowbrow, took it as his mission to bring big ideas to ordinary people, translating work by, quote, the best and the brightest, end quote, into language and expanding American middle class could understand. When I read that paragraph, the, the note I wrote in the margin is, is Steve a middle-brow author? Um, <laughs> but the, maybe the less insulting way of asking that question <laughs> is, uh, does, does, does X-Men's idea of um, finding a way, uh, finding a gap between, uh, sh shooting the gap between highbrow and lowbrow, to me, that speaks to what you are interested in, in the books you write about uh, religion. That's something I thought that you would connect to that would resonate with you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm like a vulgar popularizer with nothing to say of, of my own. <laughs>
Well, I don't think that's true. But I think I think that's the thing about finding a place in the middle. Yeah. So it's a great question. And I think the answer is yes. I think I am in my trade book writing. I think I am a middle brow author. Or I, I should say I aspire to be a middle brow author. Like I aspire to be able to translate the sorts of things that academics are learning and are, are interested in to a different audience. And I think that's precisely what X-Men was doing. And X-Men was very good at this. I mean, I interpret his books, which I called his book of books. He's like, I, I think of it as a big anthology, like sort of like William James's anthology, The Varieties of Religious Experience, his anthology of the experiences of conversion and of mysticism of, in many cases, ordinary people. Um, he is, he's doing William James. Like he's, instead of reading this Harvard professor, you know, let's read these autobiographies for people who are doing what William James was imagining. And, um, and I think, I think that's intellectual work. You know, I think it's, I think in some cases it's hard work. You know, how do you, how do you say it without the jargon of a discipline? Mm -hmm. um, how do you, how, how do you think of metaphors that, that are more popular that people can assent to, you know, as they're trying to learn some kind of new idea or as they're trying to wrestle with a new idea. So, so yeah, I think one of my attract, there are many attractions I had to this guy, you know, one was his mystical experience. Another was his sort of tragic effort to recreate it. Um, but another was his whole project, which was to try to translate these big ideas in religion that in many cases were being generated by academics into, you know, language that ordinary people could understand. That's fantastic. And, I, you know, I have to say it resonated with me too, because the, the pitch for this podcast was the conversations I have in the hallway with other professors are some of the most interesting conversations. And I'm positive if I could record them, other people would be interested. <laughs> and the feedback <laughs> I've gotten about the podcast is, um, your podcast sounds like I'm in a coffee shop eavesdropping on a more interesting conversation at another table. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so grateful for your time, Steve. Uh, this was really great. It, it reminds me of all the great conversations we had in grad school. I enjoyed it. And thanks for your careful attention to the book. I appreciate it. It was great. And good luck with it. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I love that moment when I'm like, are we doing, have we started yet? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're not the first person to do that. <laughs> Throughout his career, Stephen Prothero has promoted thoughtful public consideration about religion. He's also been a guest on network television, NPR, CNN, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and my personal favorite, The Colbert Report, back when Stephen Colbert was playing a character named Stephen Colbert. Prothero is the author of 11 books, including American Jesus, How the Son of God Became a National Icon, God is Not One, The Eight Rival Religions That Run the World and Why Their Differences Matter, and most recently, God the Bestseller, How One Editor Transformed American Religion, A Book at a Time. 
If you'd like to learn more about Stephen Prothero, I include links to articles and video in my show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Cure for Curiosity. If you enjoyed the episode, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people find the show. Our theme song was written by Derek Carden, and our logo is by artist and graphic designer Ryan Drymiller. You can see links to more of their work in the show notes for the podcast. This podcast is brought to you by University College at University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. Our mission is to provide coordinated, intentional, and inclusive services and opportunities through our core values of connecting, supporting, collaborating, and engaging. Learn more about UW-Stevens Point and all our programs at uwsp.edu.